We pray, Lord, for this word, uh, for it will stand forever. We pray that we would give our attention to it, that you would open the ears of our hearts, or the eyes of our hearts, and unstop our deaf ears. Lord, we uh, pray for uh, the speaker, that you would give him clarity of speech and thought. In all this we pray, in Christ's name, amen. A few years ago now, uh, when I was uh, back in seminary, I can vividly uh, remember one particular conversation I was having uh, with a close friend of mine about theology. You see, that's what we did in seminary. We'd uh, get together and we'd talk about what we were hearing in class, just trying to process all the things that we were learning and trying to work out the details for ourselves, trying to imbibe it and let it be a part of who we are. And as we were uh, talking, the conversation moved to how thankful we were that uh, all the theology we had been studying, all the things that we had been going through, everything we had been engaging in in the last few years related to knowing God more fully, how thankful we were that all that theology had a practical application into our lives. And we sort of were just reminding ourselves amidst the uh, grueling uh, pace of this particular school and the challenges of seminary, how every aspect of theology is worth studying. It's really worth going through all the nitty-gritty detail because it affects our mundane, ordinary, day-to-day lives. The theology that we accept as true shapes us in ways that we never imagined it possibly could. And while we were discussing this, a question came from a third party who was a a bit skeptical about what we were reminiscing about and talking about. And he said, do you really believe everything we study is practical? Do you really think that it's all important that there uh, are just some things that we seem to be studying that we will never use in ministry? Shouldn't we be spending more time learning preaching techniques or learning new methods and models for reaching the lost? Why make such a big deal out of this dry and dusty doctrine that we won't be using much anyway? Of course, this is completely opposed to what my friend and I were talking about, and we debated this student for a while, and as he was getting frustrated in the conversation, he asked this question, and I'll never forget it because it changed me. He said, well, how is the Trinity practical? Sort of one of those questions to say, well, figure this one out, buster. And I thought, how do I respond to this? How do you explain to someone about the Trinity? The Trinity doesn't seem to have any direct bearing on our lives. But my friend who was with me, and I'm thankful that he was, without missing a beat, he said, without the Trinity, there is no salvation for man. Without the Trinity... There is no good news of the gospel. Everything about the Christian faith, everything we do, everything we are becomes ultimately undone without the Trinity. It is absolutely necessary and essential to everything we are as Christians. In other words, when the church starts talking about what some consider to be highfalutin doctrines, doctrines that are difficult to understand. And I grant it, these are difficult. 
They're difficult doctrines to work through. Like what we're going to be looking at today, I hope you notice, but these particular, or this particular passage, there's a lot of big words and a lot of big theological topics going on here. But when the church starts talking about them, just because it's difficult to see how they apply to us doesn't mean it's not important. I mean, the Trinity, the Trinity is no sideline issue. It's no irrelevant doctrine. Here is the reason why the early church spent nearly 300 years working out how to understand the Trinity. This is why the early church wrote down that understanding in creeds and confessions like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Nathanations' Creed. And it's because they understood how important the Trinity is to everything we are as Christians. This morning, we're going to be looking at a text of Scripture where Paul puts the reality of the Trinity front and center for us to see. And this reality that the Trinity is essential to the salvation of men. himself in the grace and peace brought through Christ Jesus. As soon as that happens, Paul dives right into the heart of the matter of our salvation. He wastes no time. And in doing so, he erupts into this praise, even as he begins to unfold this mystery to the people of God. He's so enamored by the beauty of this God who redeems a people from the curse of sin. He's like a child that's so excited he just can't get out what he wants to say fast enough. He can't say enough about this triune God who delivers men from sin and death. I mean, verses 3 through 14 here in the Greek is all one long sentence. That's why we're going through it all together this morning. I mean, now, just think about that as we walk through this. The sentence is probably the most pregnant sentence in all of Scripture. It is just loaded with theology that we could spend weeks unfolding and trying to plumb the depths of and never reach its bottom. But instead, I want us to focus on keeping the overall picture in mind of what Paul is doing here. Paul starts out by saying in verse 3, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Did you catch that? 
Paul just set up for us everything else he's going to explain in our verses this morning. He's laying out how God has blessed us through Christ Jesus. What's what this whole section is about, about all the benefits and blessings that are ours through the substitutionary work of Christ. In other words, this is how God has chosen to bless his people. What we're unfolding is how God has chosen to bless his people. This is how God has chosen to bless those he covenants with, those he will, he will redeem. And this blessing comes to the people of God through Christ Jesus, who came down and entered into human history in the form of a child in order to redeem a people. But that's not where it all started. You see, redemption didn't start in human history. It didn't start with the work of Christ on the cross. No, it all started back in eternity past, back before the world was, back before time ever existed, back before there was anything, when the only thing that was was I am. And it started there in eternity past with the election of the Father. I mean, this is mind-numbing stuff. This isn't something easy for us to understand. And more than that, it's not an easy pill for us to swallow as 21st century people. We like to be in control of our own lives. We like knowing that things are all working together according to our own will. But we're not really given that option here in this text, are we? God is God and he alone has control over all things, even the eternal destination of souls, all the souls of mankind. Notice the very words of the text in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will. In other words, back in eternity past, God the Father set his love upon a chosen people, one whom he would draw unto himself, a people he would cleanse and make holy and blameless before him, and he does this for his own good pleasure. You see, when we start talking about redemption, when we start talking about redemption, every member of the Godhead has a role to play, and the Father, the Father chooses. He sets his love on a people long before time began, before the world was, not because these people are the greatest not because he thinks they are the best or because he has looked down the corridors of time and seen that they would turn out well if he elects them, but he does so for his own good pleasure. Matthew Henry says about this redemption wrought in eternity, about God's election that no man can peer into and truly understand the depth and the wisdom and the riches and the mercy of God. And he says about this, that this is one of the secret springs from which all the other spiritual blessings flowed. 
I love that picture that he paints. So the spring welling up out of the ground and blooming, and from this stream, one that we don't see everything, for it is a secret stream, and we drink from that stream, and all the blessings that will flow from it, all the blessings of Christ that are for those who are in it, come here out of this origin. All the rest of the benefits of being found in Christ come and start here with the election of the Father. But again, if this were the only piece of our redemption, it would be incomplete. Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. In other words, in order for redemption to take place, we, don't, we need more than just the Father to elect a people. We also need the Son to realize it. That brings us to our second point, realized by the Son realized by the Son. In verse 7, Paul continues to unfold this mystery of redemption, conceived of in eternity past, a mystery he will allude to elsewhere in this letter, even in just a few verses. But he tells us how the Son is involved in the work of the triune redemption. He tells us in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of sins. You see, it doesn't matter if the Father chose us in eternity past if we are still not cleansed of our sins because God is a holy God dwelling in inapproachable light. We need a real person to enter real history in order to deliver us from a real problem that keeps us separated from a holy God. And we know what that problem is, don't we? I mean, we know our own hearts. We know what we're each like in the secrets, in our secret places. We do things that we would be ashamed of if they were ever brought to light. We know full well what the problem is. And so the Father decrees that he would redeem a people. And the Son took upon himself the task of bringing this redemption to completion, doing whatever it took to make this happen. And Christ knew full well what it would take to do so. And he did it. He entered into history, and the Son of God would take on flesh and dwell among us. And he would grow and live a life just as we live, yet without sin, perfect in every way. And scripture tells us he would purchase the forgiveness of sins, carrying our transgression in his very body by shedding his own blood. And that's the point of verse 7, that there is a real connection between Christ's blood being shed and the forgiveness of sins brought for real people in real space and time. And God, God lavished the riches of his mercy and grace upon us in Christ, blessing us in the fullness of blessing, holding nothing back in order to bless this people, even not withholding his own son. And in Christ's work being accomplished in history, as a historical man, we begin to see the mystery of God's will as it is revealed to us unfolding. We begin to get the smallest glimpses into that secret well. 
so that in the fullness of time, God would show forth his purpose in redeeming a people. Well, beloved, just as redemption isn't complete when it's based on the election of the Father, redemption still isn't complete even with the redemption of the Father and the realization of it by the Son in human history. We need the Holy Spirit to bring it to completion. That brings us to our final point this morning. Sealed by the Spirit. In verse 11, Paul, in the same breath, remember, this is all one sentence, in the same breath as he describes the election of the Father and the redeeming work of his Son in his shedding his blood, he tells the saints that they are to receive an inheritance what does that mean? Why shift topics all of a sudden mid-sentence? When we think of inheritance, we usually think of Uncle Joe who died and he left us his uh, baseball card collection. But here, inheritance is a theologically loaded word. I mean, it comes preloaded for us. You can't put what we mean by inheritance into it. He has something else entirely in mind. You see, when the Bible speaks about inheritance, when it talks about redemption, excuse me, when it talks about redemption, it's talking about being delivered out of something and no more. So when Israel was brought out of Egypt, they became a redeemed people. They were bought for a price and paid for. But that is only half of God's promise to the Israelites and to the people of God. He didn't just promise to bring them out of Egypt and let them wander in the wilderness, did he? That's what he would have done if it was just an act of redemption, purchasing them up from Egypt. No, instead, he promises them that he would bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. He would give them an inheritance. He would give them a place to dwell in the presence of God, where he would be their God and they would be his people. And so when Paul speaks about an inheritance, he's talking about the completion of God's promise. He's coming full circle in the promises of God. He's coming to the second half or the third part of God's promise to not just deliver God's people out of something, but or out of something, but into something. He tells us that those who will receive an inheritance firstborns are the first as firstborn sons excuse me as those who would receive the entire inheritance those who receive the whole estate everything God has promised would belong to his sons and daughters and he tells us that those who will receive this inheritance will be sealed by the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantor of our inheritance That's the role of the Holy Spirit, to seal those, all those who by faith from the beginning of time to the very end of it, all those who by faith rest in Christ Jesus as their Savior, those who are chosen by the Father, those who have been elected by the Father in eternity past, he will seal them up and guarantee that they will reach the promised inheritance.
So how does the Holy Spirit do that? I mean, what's it doing when it says it seals us? Why use this term seal? Well, in the ancient world, a seal was often worn on a ring. It's how, um, it's how they closed or sealed a scroll after they had written a document. They would pour wax over it and stamp it with their signature, basically. I mean, that's what a signet was. That's what a seal did. It was a signature. And so let's say that a king passes a new law that said all children were required to eat ice cream before dinner. I mean, the king would write down this law and then place his seal at the bottom. And it's like the king said, I place all of my authority on this document. This is a, it has been spoken from my mouth itself. If anyone breaks this law, they will have to deal with me. It's a promise. It's a guarantee of what is written. It cannot be lost. It cannot be changed. The Holy Spirit is like that. He seals us. He is given to us as a down payment of something that cannot be lost. It cannot be changed. God has given us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and especially to assure us that the good work that God began, he will bring it to completion. There's no questioning it. God has spoken it. And you can take his word to the bank because he has promised it through the redemptive work of his son and sealed it by the Holy Spirit himself, the third member of the Godhead who applies this salvation and brings it all to its completion, to its end. So why does all this matter? At the end of the day, is this just heady theology? Is this a, well, that's nice, Shane, but I've got real problems in my life. And how does preaching about the Trinity help me today? What does it matter? Even if it's essential to understanding basic Christianity, what does it matter to me today? Beloved of Christ Jesus, if you are in Christ, if you rest and receive the promises of God, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and you know yourself to be a sinner and count yourself among that number, if you believe the words of this gospel and know yourself to be a sinner in need of mercy, then take heart, for God withheld nothing when he sought after you from eternity past. He doesn't promise that life will be hunky-dory when you become Christians, but what he does promise is that if you are his child, then he promises you that he will complete the good work he begun in you. He will bring it to completion and you can rest in assurance of the blood of Christ for there it speaks a better word than the blood of anything else. God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are actively bringing about the completion of your salvation. And God assures us that grace and peace have truly been given to us in Christ. It's not a myth. It's not a figment of your imagination. This is real. You can take it to the bank. 
And because of that, we can have confidence that no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter what kind of suffering you may be going through, physical or spiritual, God cares for you. And he has set his love upon you. And he is actively bringing your redemption about now, bringing you and making you a glorious bride for the bridegroom, even now. People of God, what more can we say? May we glorify and praise and magnify this triune, triune God for his redemptive work. For without the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there is no salvation for man. We would left, be left in the darkness of our own minds and ways. There would be no deliverance from this body of death. But thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift to us. For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we praise and magnify your name. We give you the glory. Do your name. We thank you for this mystery that is too deep for us to plumb the depths of. We know that we cannot look back into uh, the secret counsels of your will, and yet we praise you that you reveal to us how much you care for a people, one that you have sought after from, be the, from before the beginnings of time. We pray, Lord, that you would give us an assurance, not a false sense of assurance, not looking to ourselves or our own good works, but as we look to Christ, resting in the truth, the, the completed work of him on the cross and that you would allow the Holy Spirit to assure us that you are finishing the work you started. Father, we thank you that you are a Trinitarian God. We thank you for the riches, of the mercy of grace that you lavish upon us as we see it demonstrated in Christ. Father, we pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.